Thank you for listening to this talk produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. Thank you so much for joining us. My name's Lisa Slade and I'm the Assistant Director here at AGSA. We are on Ghana country. The Art Gallery of South Australia stands on Ghana land and I'd like to pay my respect to Elders past, present and those of the future. AGSA Ghana Miana Yatanga Yuandi Natalia. I'm focusing on the latter part of Duchamp's career. Hands up if today, coming into the exhibition, this was your first opportunity to view the exhibition, Surrealists at Sea. Great, so about half a dozen of you and the rest of you have already had a walkthrough of the exhibition. I just wanna talk a little bit about a curatorial methodology. I think it's worth just talking a little bit about the curatorial methodology, and this is a point at which Elle may wish to interject as the curator of the exhibition, but Elle has achieved the most wonderful symmetry between the idea of the lives of two brothers, their travel from the Northern Hemisphere to the Southern, the idea of the kind of complementary nature of their existence and lives, the, the idea of a doubling, a resonance, a mirroring, a symmetry, that all speaks so beautifully through the exhibition, we're met, the moment we get to the bottom of the stairs in Gallery 25, we're met with the walls that have been constructed. They look very elegant and simple. Let me tell you, they were about one of the hardest things to pull off in this exhibition. I can see Elle nodding there, trying to create a wall that's weightless and looks as though it's floating, as though on a surrealist sea, is no mean feat, no easy feat on a granite floor. Elle has suggested from the very moment we get to the bottom of the stairs that we are up for an encounter which has at least two sides. An encounter that plays with the notion of the recto and the verso, of the top and the bottom, of a doubling, of an echoing, of a doublonage. Doublonage is the term that the famed surrealist Marcel Duchamp used to talk about the idea of an alter ego. So through this, through this analysis of the long lives and practices of two brothers from the north now living in the south, Elle echoes those moments with the way that she's designed the space. Put simply, in a room like this, black plays off with white. You've got a doubling of images even over here on this northern wall. You'll see the repetition of the two works here. You've got the doubling or the mirroring that happens with these two works here. So I'm drawing your attention to that because I think this is an exhibition where there's that wonderful symmetry or, or at least a kind of matching between what's happening conceptually in the, in the practice of the artists but also in the way that the exhibition has been laid out. And that's the ultimate curatorial achievement, I would argue. It's a particular responsibility when the artists are no longer with us you don't get the chance to enter into a dialogue, which is what we do with living artists, where we talk about the conversations that the public have with their work. In some ways, it's more liberating when the artists are not with us, but I think the responsibility and the weight of those decisions is one that bears heavily upon us as curators. So, let's talk about surrealism a little bit. I think most of you would probably consider Paris to be the capital of the surrealist world. I would argue that Prague is the next capital. And of course, it is in Prague that the two brothers find their feet, or perhaps lose their feet, to talk in a more surrealist manner. 
Duchamp, in fact, claims at age 13 to be a surrealist, and that's a moniker that sticks with him through his entire life and his entire practice. That's a point worth underscoring, particularly because a lot of Australian artists, South Australians in particular, flirted with surrealism. But it was a relatively transient dalliance. They fell into and in love with surrealism at particular times, but then calibrated back to another type of practice. James Gleeson is probably the exception to that Australian rule, and of course, Duchamp Murrick. Murrick's surrealism was born in surrealist heartland, and he had the opportunity to feel its pulse very close to the centre of its body, and then to recalibrate that pulse from its ex extremities in the Antipodes. Now, the idea of a location of various meridians along the body, the body of the world, the body of the artist, is a really interesting thought. And what springs to mind is the surrealist map of the world that many of you would be familiar with. We did reproduce it in the catalogue, didn't we, Elle? It's very handy having you here, fact-checking. <laughs> Andre Breton produced this incredible map of the world. In fact, it's a challenge I'd love to give all of the kids up there in the studio right now, to draw the world as you imagine it, as you wish it to be, to move things around a little bit. Germany doesn't have to be up there. New Zealand doesn't have to be down there. Breton took that challenge as part of his Surrealist Manifesto and he positioned Oceania, specifically Papua New Guinea and parts of Australia, in the centre of his map of the world. Now, one theory has it that the enchantment with the Antipodes was underscored and strengthened for Dushan Marek upon discovering that Papua New Guinea and Australia did lie at the heart of the Surrealist world. I would argue that Australia is a particularly surrealist or uncanny place, probably particularly in 1948 when the brothers arrived. I've had a bit of fun in this exhibition since we opened, looking at the recurring symbols, the recurring visual symbols that chime across the show. The idea of, if I'd had this thought previously, I would have called this talk the eternal return, the eternal return, the idea of circularity. And I'm going to use that as a way of framing what I'm talking about, but also of thinking about this notion of a spiral, thinking of the symbol in particular of a spiral. And I've had some time to trot through the show and have a look at some of the spirals that appear in the exhibition. I've counted about two dozen and the spiral recurs across, it makes an eternal return, across the life and practice of Duchamp Marek. We don't have the, the opportunity to walk together today, it'll be a little bit too cumbersome, but as you're leaving the exhibition, I would love you to revisit, in an act of eternal return, the first work that you encounter as you get to the bottom of the stairs. It's the work that has two sides, and it's the work that you have actually probably all had a chance to see previously. It's a treasured item in our collection that has been on display at least for the last 10 years pretty well in the Elder Wing, or at least, at least the last six perhaps in the Elder Wing. 
It's a work that has two titles. It has a recto title and a verso title. The recto title is Equator and the verso title is Perpetuum Mobile. And of course, it is the work, it's the mic drop moment in Australian and perhaps in international art that proves that art is not a luxury, but an absolute necessity. Because that work of art is a work of art that has been made on a card table, a repurposed card table, a disused, discarded card table that Dushan Marek came across when he was travelling from the, across the equator, as the title of the work suggests, on the SS Charlton Sovereign. He ripped the felt off the side, which is the perpetual mobile side, and on the, on the equator side, you'll see the, the struts where he's written text, break the mirror to see what I am, or version thereof, and equator at the top, the struts that would have held the table up. Now, it's a controversial work. Many of you may already be familiar with the fact that when it was first shown, it was rejected from exhibition. It was rejected for two reasons, and this says a lot about 1949 Adelaide, because it didn't have a frame or a proper frame. When you look at it today, you'll notice that it has a kind of homemade frame, an extension of the table's edge itself. And it was also believed to be obscene, not because it depicted a naked female form and she is reclining, giving birth on the verso of the painting, but because she dared to possess pubic hair. And it was requested that Marek paint over the pubic hair. Now, Stephen Mould's beautiful essay in the publication, which of course I commend to you, many have commended this uh, catalogue actually, it's been a, a wonderfully, very well received publication. Stephen Mould's essay goes into great detail about Art Lab's inability to excavate the surface of the painting to find the missing pubic hair. But <laughs> trust me, it's a, it's a work that has had, since its inception, since its birth in 1948, it has been a lightning rod for so many incredible conversations. It was made on a journey that was a formative journey, and it's the journey, in fact, that begins the exhibition and your experience of the exhibition. And not only does it depict the figure that I've mentioned, in fact, a few figures, the spiral, the idea of the eternal return is signalled and introduced in that very painting. It's also on the verso of the work that was made in the Dillenburg detention camp on the reclaimed bunk bed slats that the spiral emerges in a work that's called The Voyage. So the spiral starts to appear and then it chimes across the entire exhibition. We see it in the work of Wojtem Marek as well as Duchamp Marek, but it's Duchamp that takes it on with incredible kind of consistency and alacrity. I never had the opportunity or the honour of meeting the man. There are many who did, so I've never had the opportunity to ask him about that spiral. But there are a few things that I'd like to suggest to you, and I'm curious about your thoughts too. There are lots and lots of resonances here with the spiral, and as I said, we've got one here for us to look at, and many more. In fact, there is one, Jane, just behind you. There is a hand, can you see that there, Jane? 
Yeah, there's a hand and it has a spiral in the centre of the hand. Is anyone wearing their Surrealist at Sea top today? You'll notice that we've used it on the front of our long sleeve t-shirts that some of our staff will be wearing. The spiral does or resounds with a few different ideas and influences here. It refers most certainly to the idea of the shell and it has a cochlear shape. Now the word cochlear is the word snail in Greek for a start. When I think about cochlea, I think about a particular part of the body. What do you all think about? Show me with, yes, thank you very much. I think that's, there's a resonance there that Marek would have been well familiar with. He speaks about the idea of listening. And of course, a surrealist pursuit articulated by Breton in both manifestos is this idea of a cross-wiring of the senses, a way of attuning to and communicating across the senses. I'm just going to read something from the book for you. Now, this relates specifically to the Kurong, and I'll come back to the Kurong. Deep in the Kurong, Duchon immersed himself in a silence where he could hear seeds germinating, rocks evolving, and listen to the rhythms of the universe. That quote goes on. But this idea of tuning into and listening to nature, there are some other things that happen with this shell. This shell is reminiscent of the nautilus shell. Now, the nautilus shell has its prehistoric trace in the ammonite. Many of you would be familiar with ammonites. There are plenty in the collection of the museum next door. There's a wonderful work, a new acquisition in our collection, that's on view at the moment in Gallery 5 that might be worth a visit after this talk. It's a work by Aki Inomata. Inomata creates a 3D printed version of a nautilus shell or an ammonite. In fact, people talk about nautilus shells or nautilus as being living fossils, as being largely unchanged across their long history. Aki and Omata creates a 3D printed version of the nautilus chambered shell and gives it to an octopus in an act of creative collaboration. It's a really great video work. Also on view are two very beautiful canisters that are part of uh, the exhibition downstairs, so part of the vast emporium in Lower Melrose, that have been made from nautilus shells too. They're a reminder, particularly because of my fascination with Renaissance collecting, of the power that the shell had over the human imagination, really across history, but it reached fever pitch in the 16th and 17th centuries because it defied classification. It was wrought, to, to quote Martin Kemp, who quotes others, it was wrought by, it was not wrought by an artist's hand, it was wrought by the hand of nature. It was proof of this incredibly uh, powerful, creative progenitor. So those works are worth checking out before you leave today. Now, the Nautilus shell has a lot of significance for artists. Does anyone know why? It's considered to be... Have you heard a reference to the golden mean before, if you think about the golden mean? Well, it's in the chambers of the Nautilus shell that we find sacred and perfect geometry. Nature has this capacity across many forms, and the Nautilus is just one, of being perfectly geometric, of measuring God, in a sense, and measuring time and measuring place, measuring country. 
I think all of these resonances, and these are my readings, obviously, as I mentioned, but I think these would have been resonances that Murek was well aware of. Of course, arguably, the greatest, simplest, and most elegant resonance of all is with the sea, with the idea that when we place a cochlea to our ear, which of course is where the idea has come from, we hear the sea. We get close to the sea when we place a shell to our ear. We are here in the surrealist sea, where one sense can chime with another, where one material can speak to another. Materiality is clearly the mainstay, I'd say the passion of Duchamp Marek and his brother Voita. I mean, have you ever seen an exhibition with such an exhausting range of materials by just two artists? It's absolutely astonishing. They shapeshift and move from one material to another as though they've been trained in all of them. And I mean that in the sense that even the two-dimensional works, even the works on board or the works on paper, push all of those material notions. A great example being this work over here that was made late by Duchamp in Tasmania. It was made in Margate when he was working at the art school there. It, of course, features a literal shell, as well as a whole lot of shapes. It features a, a literal shell, which is what is appearing as though like a kind of popping... What, what are those things called? A jack-in-a-box, like a jack-in-a-box that's popping out of the, the picture plane. This idea of materiality, I think, is very well demonstrated, or the proclivity for diverse materials is really well demonstrated with these works here, among my favourites in the show. They're an example of what the surrealists called frottage. Frottage. There are lots of great surrealist techniques that can be viewed in this exhibition. In fact, you could have a dictionary or a glossary of surrealist techniques. Grattage is one of my faves as well. Grattage is when you rub paint across the surface and it catches at various intervals. Wonderful examples in the next room in particular. In this room, frottage is the star subject on this southern wall. Frottage is the ultimate, or one of the ultimate surrealist devices because it removes the agency of the artist. So the way that frottage works, and if you've never had a chance to do it, you've got your homework for tonight. Take some paper out of brown paper, wax paper, whatever you like, baking paper, it doesn't, baking paper is actually really good for this. Tissue paper, place it over a texture. Don't think too much about it. And take a crayon or some charcoal, something very soft, a material very soft. Close your eyes and rub that material over the paper to take the registration of the thing beneath it. Now, when the Surrealists did this, we call them rubbings, trust me that the sexual references were not lost on the Surrealists. In fact, so much of the work is about sexual drive as a creative force, and the idea of taking these rubbings was certainly part of their canon of creativity fueled by by desire, fueled by the body. In the case of these works by Duchamp Marek, which are made in 1968, the year I was born, 69, 70, 69, 71 in the case of the painting, and I'll talk to you about that in a moment, and 68. We're, all, we're talking about a body of work all made within a one to two year period where this notion of frottage is used to free the mind. And what follows are these incredibly hallucinogenic 
images. These images which allow us to kind of psychedelic, perhaps, arguably, sexy, most certainly, images that allow us to make meaning, images that allow us to project various readings, readings that connect back to nature, readings that connect back to biography, back to history, back to time, but then also this kind of geological substrate that you can see through here. Now, if I think of a, a version, a Northern Hemisphere precursor to Dushan Marek within the Surrealists, there's one person that I settle upon every time. And I don't know how Marek felt about him. Does anyone, can anyone guess who it might have been? Who do you think Dushan Marek's favourite Surrealist was? Dali? I think there's some trace of Dali. When we think about surrealism, we think about two schools or two, I'm being very uh, general here and I'm simplifying this argument, but we think about what we call the concrete irrationalists. So that is Dali, that is certainly someone like Dorothea Tanning, someone who painted precisely to disrupt the idea of realism, to create an illusion. So they're the concrete irrationalists. And then there's another school, and the other school are the biomorphic abstractionists. There's a work called Biomorphic Abstraction in the front room in 24 as you come through. So the biomorphic abstractionists, and they were the artists. Anyone got an example of who they might be? Very good. I'm going to come back to Max Ernst. Do you hold that thought for a minute? Because I think he's the exception to the rule, and he's the, he's the answer to this whole question. Juan Miro, most definitely. Andre Masson. Uh, artists like Case Age, artists who were exploring abstraction and calling on the subconscious to create largely abstract images. That develops into Jackson Pollock and into abstract expressionism, by the way. Max Ernst, very good. I think there's a real connection between Max Ernst and, and Dushan Marek. One of the reasons, and this is entirely my theory, you can quote me, but you know it's not necessarily the truth <laughs> or the way it was. I don't know how much he knew of Ernst. Ernst was the first one to read Freud. So Ernst trained as a, as a psychologist. He was also German, yeah? The others were not on the whole. Ernst read Freud, the interpretation of dreams, before Freud was translated. So he was there at the beginning. He was on the money and he was studying psychology. It's Ernst who uses frottage and grattage, Europe after the rain being one of the most famous images. And it's Ernst who picks up this idea of technical processes calling up, calling up the subconscious and how one can disrupt normative ways of thinking. Ernst jumped across from biomorphic abstraction to concrete irrationality. And in a work uh, like Europe After the Rain and others, you can actually see figures and a kind of commitment to realism blended with this abstraction. When I look at the two works on that northern wall, that is precisely what I'm seeing, a convergence of realism and abstraction to take us somewhere else. And the theme of the littoral, that zone, the liminal zone between the water and the land, that coastal strip, is the other space that Marek occupies. He likes to walk in that littoral zone. That littoral zone is leading me to the Kurong and in the, in the next room. And I would love to encourage you to go and spend time with those paintings. Those paintings 
are a, another example of this kind of panoply of material possibilities. They have been made largely, the works on aluminium, which are the works on the southern wall, they've been made largely by pooling enamel paint and oil paint onto a metal surface. There's a sense to which Marek is kind of registering the world in doing this. There's a kind of soothsaying, there's something a bit magical, alchemical, about capturing those materials, mercurial, about moving those materials around. It's almost as though he's freed up the subconscious, he's freed up his conscious mind so much that the work is kind of creating itself. He watches the work emerge, he watches the work being born. To that process of the interaction, you'll see the tension, you'll see the aluminium paint crazing, I mean the enamel paint crazing on the aluminium, and you'll see the paint reacting to other viscosities on the surface. To that, he adds kind of arcs and gestures, many of them spiral-like, of course, many of them absolutely reflecting that cochlean form. To me, what's happening on the surface in the next room is precisely a painterly version of what was happening for Marek himself in the Kurong. And he talks about experiencing salt and sand and water as having a profound effect on him and that floating in the Kurong enabled him to have an otherworldly experience and an out-of-body one. He could leave his body behind. Now, Stephen Mould, in his beautiful essay in the book, reminds us, and this was a great thing to be reminded of, that Max Harris, too, was drawn to the Kurong. That for Max Harris, the Kurong was this kind of magical place. Now, for Narangeri people, the Kurong is the Kumarank, it's the beginning of the world. It's the vagina of the world. It's where life begins. It's where life emerges from. I don't know how attuned Duchamp Marek was to Narangeri ways of seeing and being, but I think it's an uncanny resonance and an insightful resonance that he attributes so much power to that landscape as this place of primordial, eternal return. That's probably an ending. <laughs> Sometimes I get there and I don't even know. But I'm, I'd love to take questions or comments, additions to observations that you may have had. I want you all to go on the cochlear hunt after this moment. Oh, I might explain this, because I made a reference to it but didn't come back to it. In fact, I want you to explain it, Elle. Can I do that to you? And what I'd like you to do is point out what's happening here in terms of the conversations between the frottage and the painting. Sure, I haven't really articulated it before. But I can say that this little yeah, decision to put these three paintings together was the decision that made our install team question me the most. I think they were very unsure of what I was doing here. But I decided to put these two drawings either side of this small painting based on an installation photograph of one of Duchamp's exhibitions that he held during his lifetime. So he very frequently positioned drawings alongside paintings and other media, as Lisa's already discussed. But this particular install included these two drawings, and in the very middle, tightly compacted in the very middle there, was another painting called The Birth of Love, 
which we've included at the very beginning of the exhibition. But I was so interested to see that he was putting a painting from 1948 in the middle of two drawings that he created, you know, decades later in the 1970s or, or late 1960s. So here I've included a painting which I thought had a similar feeling to The Birth of Love. You can kind of see this, the same stretching figure, a kind of abstracted figure in the centre which reappears here in the drawing, Growth Caused by Attraction. So that was the main basis there, just to, again, remind us of the connections between or across diverse media in the artist's work. But I will add, Lisa, that, um, yeah, Magritte was um, Duchamp's favourite surrealist. Not But who knows? Yeah. Like, yeah. And Magritte, of course, belonged to the kind of concrete irrationalist in that he was an astute painter. I, I reckon one of the reasons that he was probably drawn to Magritte is Magritte was a precocious talent. I think at age eight he could paint like a master. And I think about Duchamp Marek in similar ways, that idea of an early kind of calling and what one does with that calling. Well, what he did with that calling was extraordinary, of course. You've got this... Rel I mean, he died young. He died in his late 60s, mid to late 60s. But... It's just the resonances, the material resonances and conversations across decades, across time and across place are so incredible. And they are, of course, echoed in each chapter of the exhibition, like a call and response by the work of Wojta Marek. And Marek, Wojta Marek uh, was certainly no stranger to deep philosophical and even... I would say religious thinking. He, he studied comparative religions at the time that, that his brother, his much younger brother Duchamp, because they were the eldest and the youngest of the family and the child in between, that at the time that Duchamp was studying visual arts, Wojtemarek was studying comparative religion and doing so with a, I would say, with a fairly kind of, with an atheism, a kind of healthy atheism of the time, which is converted to Catholicism once he reaches, reaches Australia and specifically once he reaches nature in those lighthouses. So those, the kind of conversations between these two brothers, the complexity of their practice, their dipping in and out of theories and dominant practices that were happening both here and elsewhere in the world runs beautifully through, very much in kind of liquid form through this exhibition. So final word for me is a big congratulations to Elle and I would encourage you to go to our website for regular updates on the exhibition. We, are we halfway through? Not quite. No, not quite, which is fantastic. And I do want to give a, just a couple of plugs for things that are coming up. And Alira, you're here to remind me that I, so I don't forget any of these. The first is our Surrealist Sundays programs and we, that one of them kicks off this Sunday and then the following Sunday, where we will have poetry readings, including, and I can't wait to hear what Dominic's got to say, Dominic Guerrera, who's a Naranjeti man, has responded to the Kurong works in the next room. So Dom will be reading his poetry and his mother's poetry, mother's or grandmother's, I can't quite remember, a maternal precursor, her poetry. Uh, so we've got two lots of Surrealist Sundays, all free programming, all as part of the exhibition. And then on the 23rd and 24th of July, we are staying open until 9pm. And that's as part of the Illuminate Festival. We'll have a work of art on the front of the building on that big screen. We will have our studio presented by Patch Theatre, Sea of Light, open upstairs. And this exhibition will be open downstairs. So we'll be open till 9pm on Friday the 23rd and Saturday the 24th. 
For all other details, see the website. Thank you so much for joining us today. Cheers.